Good morning. My name is Alex, and I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright. I want to welcome you to our service, whether you're here in the room with me. And I see some faces I haven't seen in a while, so that's great to see you. Or maybe you're watching online. We want to welcome everybody. I will be mostly looking at the camera because there are more of you in our online congregation. Um, once in a while, I will be unable to resist the temptation to make eye contact with a human being. The camera doesn't give me those warm vibes the way you do. So today we've come to the end of our study of Ephesians. 14 weeks we've spent in this amazing book of the New Testament, going back to the spring. And we're going to do something different to wrap it up today. We're going to focus on how to practice what we've learned in this letter. We've had plenty of time to go into detail with each passage we've looked at from Sunday to Sunday. And as a part of that, we apply that truth to our lives. But today, we're summing it all up. We're going to try to do that. What has God been saying to us as a congregation through the book of Ephesians? That'll be one of the big questions we ask. So Justin and I are going to try to answer that. As we were planning this, we wondered what our scripture reading should be for this morning. Do we read the whole book of Ephesians? No, that would take a very long time. Instead, we're going outside of our congregation for help. We're turning to a couple of our favorite Bible teachers, Tim Mackey and John Collins from The Bible Project. Anyone here heard of The Bible Project? Maybe looked at some of their videos? I see a few hands going up. Well, they've created a superb video that offers this overview of Ephesians. It does a better job, we think, of recapping than we ever could. And if you come out of this morning's service uh, with a, the motivation to check out more Bible Project videos, we'll be glad for that. The video is also packed with lots of verses taken right out of Ephesians. So it's going to serve today as our scripture reading. Let's pray this word. Holy Spirit, you're the only one who has the words of eternal life, the words of our Lord. We ask you this morning to make them sink into our hearts and to transform our minds, to renew us, to refresh us, to encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The story of how Paul came to the city of Ephesus is really interesting. You can go read about it in Acts chapter 19. Ephesus was a huge city. It was the epicenter of worship for most of the Greek and Roman gods. And for over two years, Paul had a really effective missionary presence there, and lots of people became followers of Jesus. Years later, after being imprisoned by the Romans, Paul wrote this letter. The movement of thought in the letter divides into two really clear halves. In the first half, Paul is exploring the story of the gospel, how all history came to its climax in Jesus and in his creation of this multi-ethnic community of his followers. The second half of the letter is linked to the first by the word, therefore. And here Paul explores how the gospel story should affect how we live every part of our life story, personally, in our neighborhoods and communities, and in our families. So let's dive in. We can see how Paul develops all of this. Chapter 1 opens with a beautiful Jewish-style poem where Paul praises God the Father for the amazing things that he has done in Christ Jesus. Eternity past, the Father has purpose to choose and bless a covenant 
people. And think here, the family of Abraham and Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And through Jesus now, anyone into that family. Jesus' death covers our worst sins, our worst failures, and in Jesus we find God's grace. In fact, Paul says that grace has opened up a whole new way for us to understand every part of our lives. He says in chapter 1 verse 10 that God's purpose was to unify all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, which is a title that means Messiah. God's plan was always to have a huge family of restored human beings who are unified in Jesus the Messiah. This divine purpose became clear, Paul says, when we were first made into that family. And here he's referring to ethnic Jews in the family of Abraham. But then Paul talks about how you, and here he means non-Jews, you all heard about Jesus and the salvation through him. And you were also brought into this family by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so here he's referring to the events told in the stories of Acts about how God's Spirit brought together Jew and non-Jew into one family in Jesus. It's just like God promised to Abraham long ago. Notice also how in this poem, Paul begins by talking about God the Father, but then about Jesus the Son, and then here at the end about the Spirit. All three work together as Paul tells the story of the gospel. It's really cool. After the poem, Paul responds with a prayer. He prays that these followers of Jesus would not just know about but personally experience the power of the gospel, that they would be energized by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and placed him as the exalted head of the whole world. Now in chapter 2, Paul goes back and he elaborates on some key ideas from the poem in chapter 1, especially God's grace and this new multi-ethnic family of Jesus. He begins by retelling the story of how these non-Jewish Christians came to know Jesus. Before hearing about Jesus, they were physically alive, but they were spiritually dead. They were trapped in a purposeless life of selfishness and sin, and they were deceived by dark spiritual forces of evil. But amazingly, God in his great love and mercy, he saved them, he forgave all of their sins, and he joined their lives to Jesus's resurrection life, and he's brought them back to life too. And so now, having been created as new human beings through Jesus, they have the joy of discovering all of the new calling and purposes and tasks that God has set before them. Not only have they been shown God's grace, they've also been invited into a new family. Before hearing about Jesus, these non-Jewish people, they were not just cut off from God, they were cut off from his covenant people, the family of Abraham. And for a really practical reason, the commands of the Sinai covenant, they formed like a boundary line around the family. They were like a barrier that kept most non-Jewish people away. But in Jesus, the laws of the Torah have been fulfilled and the barrier is removed. The two ethnic groups have become, as Paul puts it, a new unified humanity that can live together in peace. So Paul goes on in chapter 3 to marvel at the unique role that he got to have in spreading this good news to non-Jewish people. And even though he's in prison, he's thanking God for the chance he's had to see this covenant family grow so huge. So Paul closes the first half of the letter with another prayer. This time he prays that Jesus' followers would be strengthened by God's Spirit to simply grasp and comprehend the love that Christ has for his people. The second half of the letter begins with Paul shifting gears, and he starts challenging the reader to respond to the gospel story by how they live their own life story. 
So he starts in chapter 4 with just the everyday life of the church. The church is a big family with lots of different kinds of people, but he emphasizes that they are one, and one is a key word in this chapter. They are one body that's unified by one spirit. They have one Lord with one faith. They have one baptism. They believe in one God. That's a lot of unity. However, Paul says unity is not the same thing as uniformity. He goes on to explore how Jesus's new family consists of lots of very, very different kinds of people, but they're all empowered by the one Holy Spirit, each using their unique talents and passions to serve and to love each other and to build up the church. And here he uses two really cool metaphors. One is building up the church as a new temple. And the second is that they are all becoming a new humanity with Jesus as the head. And this new humanity is a metaphor he's going to then run with for the next couple chapters. Paul challenges every Christian to take off their old humanity, like a set of old clothes, and to put on their new humanity in which the image of God is being restored. And he then goes on into this long section where he compares this new and old humanity. So instead of lying, new humans speak truth. Instead of harboring anger, they peacefully resolve their conflicts. Instead of stealing, new humans are generous. Instead of gossiping, they encourage people with their words. Instead of getting revenge, new humans forgive. Instead of gratifying every sexual impulse, new humans cultivate self-control of their bodily desires. Instead of getting drunk, new humans come under the influence of God's Spirit. And he spells out what that influence looks like in four different ways. The first two have to do with singing, singing together, but also singing alone. And this is really interesting that the first thing that Paul thinks of about how the Spirit works in the lives of Jesus' people is singing and music. The third sign of the Spirit's influence is being thankful for everything. And the fourth is that the Spirit will compel Jesus' followers to put themselves underneath others and to elevate others as more important than themselves. And Paul actually expands on this fourth point by showing how it works in Christian marriage. So you have a wife who follows Jesus. She is called to respect and to allow her husband to become responsible for her. And the husband is called to love his wife and to use his responsibility to lay down his selfish agenda and to prioritize his wife's well-being above his own. And Paul says it's this kind of marriage that's actually reenacting the gospel story. The husband's actions mimic Jesus and his love and his self-sacrifice. The wife's actions mimic the church, which allows Jesus to love her and to make her new. Paul then applies the same idea to children and parents as well as slaves and masters. Paul closes out the letter by reminding these Christians of the reality of spiritual evil. These are beings and forces that will try to undermine the unity of Jesus' people and to compromise their new humanity. And so Paul challenges them to stand firm and to put on this metaphorical set of body armor, which he describes in detail. And Paul has drawn all of these pieces of body armor from the book of Isaiah and how Isaiah depicted the Messianic king. And so now, as the Messiah's followers, we need to make the Messiah's attributes our own since we make up Jesus' body. Practically, I think Paul means for Christians to begin to form habits, proactively using prayer and the scriptures and our relationships with each other to help us grow and mature as followers of Jesus. And that's the letter to the Ephesians. Very powerful. It's where Paul summarizes the whole gospel story and how it should reshape every part of our life story.
So good. Amazing. Are we six feet apart? I think so. Anyone have a yardstick? <laughs> I can still see features on your face, though, so that's, that's a good ooh. We're maybe, uh. maybe, maybe a little too close. <laughs> I don't think we could have ever done uh, justice of, of that nature in terms of trying to encompass the whole book. So I'm really, uh, I'm really grateful for the Bible Project and to be able to use some of those re resources. And so um, Alex and I did something kind of fun where we, we actually haven't conferred with one another on what we're sharing this morning. It's going to be fun. And so there may be overlap, but I have a feeling that we have some very different things that we've drawn out of, of this entire series and some practical bits. And so I want to just take a few minutes and do that, and then Alex uh, will do the same. So um, I want to start by just um, talking about in, in this early chapter, in, in, in chapter one, I love Paul's emphasis on identity. For me, identity shapes everything. It forms us in so many ways. And especially, I think, about that word adoption. It specifically makes me think about this idea that God did not have to, but he chose to. God did not have to uh, send Jesus. God did not have to create us, but he chose to in love, as it says. And that just makes the gift that much richer, and it makes, personally for me, I hope it does for you as well, it makes my, my identity in Christ just that much stronger. And in my view, this kind of sets up the rest of the letter. This is what kind of what Paul prays uh, at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, where he says these words. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So identity for me is kind of the number one takeaway, and it just sets everything else up. So I want to jump now into just a couple different sections um, and kind of get into what this might mean for us as individuals, but also as a church at Courtright. So in chapter two, in the early parts, which I'm not going to get into as much, um, Paul explores these, scene, these themes of what it means to be made alive in Jesus. You might recall Alex's, he had, what was it, z all zombies, zin, sanctification, what was the other S? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Let's look it up. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, but th this idea of spiritual lifelessness to spiritual life. And he ends that section by saying these words. He says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And I mean, that could be an sermon there, so don't get me going on it. But I love the flowing of Paul's reasoning there, that we are God's handiwork. The, the Greek word there is the word poema, which brings about this idea that we are God's labor of love, God's beloved creation, like the way a, an artist uh, designs a, a sculpture or the way a writer writes a poem. That's where we get that word poema from. And we weren't just created to look good, um, believe it or not, but to do good works as a response to the gift of being spiritually raised to life in Jesus. And so there's something for us as a church in that, that we live our lives in response to Jesus. 
So as a response to Jesus this past year, um, we expanded our garden in the back here, um, and we gave food away, and we expanded it again with hopes of doing much more. As a response to Jesus, we are working out various ways in which we can be uh, a light in our neighborhood, be a welcoming and loving presence in the, in the University Village neighborhood. As a response to Jesus, we want to stay, even in the middle of a global pandemic, global pandemic we want to stay in community with one another uh, through reaching out those in need. And we can do that through connecting in our neighborhood groups. Allison didn't pay me to say that. Uh, we can do that through connecting in our, uh, like I said, our neighborhood groups, sending a text or an email to uh, a friend or a family or a church family member that you haven't heard from in a while, making that phone call, dropping off a meal, just simply being intentional. I think that's the greatest thing that we can do as a response to what Christ has done. We do that for others. And then to lead into Paul's next section on reconciliation in chapter 2 and 3, as a response to Jesus, we recognize that as God reconciled himself to us, we therefore are to reconcile uh, to, to one another. And that takes on the form of radical racial and ethnic reconciliation. He says, uh, for he, Jesus, he himself is our peace. Who has, made, uh, who has made two groups one, this idea of the Jews and the Gentiles becoming one family under adoption. And it's this beautiful, wonderful mystery. So we had a really powerful, I don't know how many of you were a part of it, but we had this really powerful talkback session uh, in the spring in light of a lot of the societal upheaval that has been happening over the past number of months. And if you recall, uh, many parts of the, the world, but especially in North America and America, uh, there was ongoing Black Lives Matter protests and a significant uh, conversation in the church was happening on race and the gospel. And as I've reflected further with some of my black friends, there's a few things that have become apparent to me as it relates to both the scriptures, what we read here in Ephesians, as well as the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. So more than ever, and I tread carefully with this, but also I don't want to be too like wussy about it. So I'm just going to say it. More than ever, white evangelicals, white Protestants need to be conscious about centering non-white voices. For centuries and centuries, Protestantism has been primarily the theology of old white men. Is that fair to say, Alex? We could talk about that. <laughs> um, some of your favorites, I think, even. And, and they're wonderful. They, and we have so much, we've gained so much from them. But I believe that it is critical more than ever to make some appropriate correctives, to listen, to read, to learn from other godly perspectives. And I think that that's something that we did over the summer with uh, this uh, Courtright Learns uh, group that Allison uh, and a number of others from Courtright started, where I think around 30 people were reading books and learning in different ways. It's really to recognize that my non-white friends have an equal and valid and often more poignant than I have understanding of God's word that as for me as a non-marginalized person, I can't have that perspective. And that's a challenging thing for me to grapple with. I will say this, that it is difficult is my takeaway here. It is difficult to be reconciled to one another when our collective voices are not given a greater equal weight. 
So that means practically as a church that we need to draw from broader and more diverse pools of means that sometimes we're going to have to lead with deference to one another to hear voices, sometimes voices that will make me as a white male feel uncomfortable. And being okay with that tension, that's, it's okay to feel uncomfortable even if you're sitting here or at home and you're feeling uncomfortable, that's okay. Um, sometimes we need to get out of our comfort zones a little bit. And so I want to just challenge us in that and push us in that. And I just want to really quickly zoom into just a couple other areas really quick. So in chapter four, um, Paul calls the congregation in Ephesians, he calls them to oneness and unity, to grow in Christian maturity. And as a part of that, he encourages us to embrace uh, our roles and our specific callings as individuals within the church. And he uses these five different roles. He uses, uh, it's kind of uh, the, under, the, um, under the phrase apest, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, or pastor, uh, and teacher. And time doesn't allow us this morning to get into the specifics of that, but there is a movement among a lot of churches, which I think is really healthy, and is to see these roles as critical for the healthy functioning of a church. And a part of that means it's not just the staff people that are in those roles. Um, the staff might play a role in that, but they are not the only people that are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, shepherds, teachers. So it's an opportunity for us to explore, when we read that passage, just to, for us to explore, what is my gifting? Where, where am I called uh, to serve in the body of Christ? And it goes a little bit broader than sort of our specific spiritual gifts. It's kind of who has God wired me to be? So as a really super practical takeaway... I want to encourage um, any of you who haven't taken this online test. There's a fun one you can do. I'll post a link to it later on. It's uh, fivefoldministry.com, all one kind of no dashes or hyphens or anything. Fivefoldministry.com. You can take a little test. It takes about 10 minutes or so. Um, and it's a great way. Just it's, it's not the be all and end all. It's just one simple way to like explore where do I sit? Where am I strong? Where does the Holy Spirit need to strengthen me? When we learn who we are, our identity, and when we learn how God has wired us, which is our gifting or in the roles that we play, it can do incredible, amazing things for the body of Christ. Lastly, um, mutual submission, which we talk about in Ephesians 5 and 6 as we get into the household codes. Um, I just want to center around this idea. This idea of mutual submission that kind of connects with uh, what I was saying a few minutes ago about uh, listening to and learning from one another. The importance of putting our power in its rightful place, of putting other people first, of sacrificial love. So I just, I just want us to think about that for a moment, that there's been lots of chatter over the past number of weeks and months as this pandemic has gone along. Um, about the role of the church and the functioning of the church, both locally at Courtright as well as around the world. And um, there are some people who have argued that the church has been unfairly targeted during this pandemic, that some people have even used the P word, they've used persecution. And I want to just say, I, I bristle at that a little bit this morning, um, because actually, the church has been given some interesting power in this season, and I want us to recognize that power, that the church has actually been given some privilege that we may not even be aware of, that uh, in any other context, 
the, the, the 40 of us or so in this room that are gathering right now, this would be completely and totally illegal, right? Based on the current government restrictions that we have before us. And so I want us to frame our, the current season we're in as, man, God has really privileged us in some ways. God has given us a unique power. How are we using that? How are we taking advantage of what God is saying and doing in this season where, where the church actually has an ability more than any other group to gather in large quantities? It's at least larger than 10 people in, in, indoors, you know? So I want us to think about that and pray through that and consider um, how we wield our power as a church, both individually, uh, as, as a congregation, and just to consider that. Maybe that's the practical takeaway regarding this, is to, to take some time and think, okay, what power do I have? Where, where, which, which areas in my life do I have power? How can I wield that responsibly? How can I uh, be, be good about that? And how can I um, display to both our Christian friends and our non-Christian friends that we want to do that well? So that's it for me. And I just wanted to uh, just share some of my practical takeaways. Thanks, Justin. Yeah, I, I think uh, it's going to be almost like we planned it because you touched on things that I'm not going to touch on. And, and so I think uh, this is going to come together well. We, we've been talking since the pandemic began about how God is going to use this crisis for good. And one way he's done that and is continuing to do that, I think, is by helping us to focus on the essential things. A crisis can bring clarity in our lives. So what's most important? And I think you've been asking that question, and, and I'm going to pick up where you began by looking at identity. Who are we when all of these things, things of secondary importance perhaps, but so many things that matter to us have been stripped away? We know that we are in Christ. Ephesians has hammered that message home over and over again, but what does that mean and how do we live that out? So. Uh, I love the way the, the video we saw tied the first three chapters of Ephesians into the gospel story and said that that then prompts our story. And I'm excited to see where these questions are going to lead us, uh, partly because we as elders and staff are holding a retreat in a couple of weeks. And we want to put all the pieces together from the last nine months and really from our first 40 years as a church, we're celebrating our 40th anniversary this year, and move into the new vision that we think God is giving us for what comes next. And we haven't figured that out yet, but we're praying together, not just as leaders, but as a whole congregation, uh, to know God's will. So I came up with just two highlights from Ephesians. The first uh, is also, as Justin began, uh, in chapter one of this book, and that is that we have a holy purpose. I think there's a lot of confusion out there in our world among the people we know about what am I living for? What is my life meant to be? And Paul addresses his letter from the very outset, from the very first verse, to the saints or the holy ones in the city of Ephesus. And, and that applies to us also. Even if you don't feel like a saint, uh, maybe you aren't acting like one, you are a saint because God is holy and he has made you holy through Christ. And so Paul's kind of redefining what a saint is here, I think. Our holiness is not the result of our good behavior. Sometimes we, we operate with that assumption. 
It's about what Jesus has done for us at the cross. And we're called to be saints or holy people because God has chosen us. He has set us apart for a special purpose. The way a mechanic might have a special tool that only he or she knows how to use and that's uniquely designed to fix a certain part of your car. In Romans 12, Paul says, and like Allison did in the call to worship, this is from the message, Paul writes, here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. I love that, and, and I think that we sometimes confuse our holy calling as Christians with this, what we're doing right now, with Sunday morning worship. And, and I think that's been disrupted for us in an unprecedented way through this pandemic. The practice of our holy purpose is really to recognize God's presence in your everyday, ordinary life. I recently picked up a book entitled Every Moment Holy, and prayers for ordinary moments in your life, including, it calls them liturgies, including a prayer for doing the laundry, for the changing of diapers. In fact, there's two prayers for the changing of diapers, for the consumption of media. Do you ever pray before you turn on Netflix looking for anything that has a decent story? I know that's something that I don't do. There are prayers for feasting with friends, prayer for a sick day, a prayer for those flooded by too much information. That one really resonated with me. A prayer for those who cannot sleep. A prayer for those experiencing road rage. I'm putting a copy of that in my car for future <laughs> reference, I think. There's also a prayer for gardening, and I, I wondered, you know, the gardening team, obviously what we're doing with the garden out back is part of our holy purpose as Christians at Courtright. And I thought, I began to think, what prayers do I need to add to the collection? I thought I could add to the section on lament, a prayer for a prayer in the wake of a Toronto Maple Leafs loss would be something that, that I could think I could write. So on and on it goes. And, and this practice of naming every moment as holy, as full of God's presence and purpose, will change us as we develop the habit of stopping and asking the Holy Spirit to join us in those moments and not thinking of God as over here in one compartment of our lives. And it's, it lends itself to missional thinking totally because as we see God active in those pockets of our lives, at work, in our volunteer commitments, in our neighborhoods, we, that's where we meet people and that's where we can witness to Christ and share our faith. So it starts with grace. It doesn't start with duty and uh, activity but it does lead into a response. And I had the same verse you did, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ to do good works which are prepared for us in advance to do. So we have this purpose. The second thing that I keep coming back to as I reflect on Ephesians is this image Paul gives us of being together as the body of Christ. I think there is no, for me anyway, there's no more powerful and inspiring idea, picture of what it means to be the church. And in verse 15 of chapter 4 of his letter, Paul says the first thing we should do in building up the body, in building the church, is to speak the truth in love. It, it's really that simple, speaking the truth in love. He says that's the key 
to reaching unity, and to measuring up to the fullness of Jesus. So how do we practice that? Well, there are so many ways we could, we could be here uh, well into the afternoon talking about this, and, and Justin's talked about justice as one way that we can speak the truth in love um, and, and then put it into practice, not just speech, obviously, but also doing. I want to talk about confession and encouragement. In chapter 5, Paul says that we are children of the light and that in order to grow and flourish, we need company. And so we need Christian friends who can shed light on our confusion, on our struggles, and we need to be honest with other people about those struggles. And then that's one of the ways that the Holy Spirit brings his light into our lives. On Thursday, I had a meeting with 10 other pastors, and one of them had a confession to make in the middle of our conversation. He said that he's been feeling totally inadequate as a leader since the pandemic started. He's not doing enough to innovate. That's how he feels. He doesn't have a good enough vision for the future. He doesn't have a digital strategy. He's not reaching all these people online. And he said also he's ashamed of how tired he feels when it doesn't seem like he's accomplished all that much. I don't know if you can relate to that, but... I was moved by that. And, and it really felt like the light came into that room. Okay, we were on Zoom, so it's a Zoom room, not a real room, but there was light all of a sudden, and there was like this collective sigh of relief among us that, wow, here's someone speaking the truth. And, and it changed the dynamic. People were willing to share things that maybe they wouldn't have been. We need to confess our struggles and our sins to one another. And one of the reasons we have small groups is so that friendships and trust can develop between us. Now, often it happens outside of small groups, maybe a little more naturally, but those groups exist for that purpose uh, so that we can flourish together. So take the risk. The next time you're considering sharing something, being vulnerable, confessing your struggles to another believer, go for it. You'll be amazed at the difference it makes. We also speak the truth in love by encouraging one another. And we saw that last week. We saw how the devil tells us lies about who we are. You know, we have this voice that we think is our voice going in the back of our heads, accusing us, calling us things. Uh, and the devil wants to destroy us by tempting us to believe those things. And so the practice becomes a daily ritual of encouragement where we can, in the morning, if you start the day with prayer, with a time of devotion, or maybe you do it later in the day, where, where we can ask the Holy Spirit, how do you want me to encourage someone? How, who can I pick up the phone and call today? Someone who needs to hear the truth that God loves them and not these lies that we often hear. So a couple of examples of that. Some of us have lost jobs recently, right? Guelph is a prosperous city, and there's a low unemployment rate, but with the pandemic, obviously a lot of job loss going on. It's hard to be unemployed. It, it's hard to look for a job. And if you've been through that, you're in a great position to speak the truth in love to someone who is new to that experience. And maybe God is calling you to start a group like that for people who are in the midst of unemployment. Or another example, maybe you've just retired. Well, retirement, believe it or not, can lead to an identity crisis. And I'd love to see people at Courtright and, and people beyond coming together, those who are newly retired, those who are approaching retirement, 
and encouraging each other in that, sharing wisdom, speaking the truth in love to each other. So maybe these are one-offs, or maybe they're more sustained, a group that commits to meeting. But confession and encouragement happen that way, and and I think even more often happen one-on-one. And I pray that we will find more and more creative ways as a congregation to speak the truth in love to the people who God has brought us together with, and then, and then to, to find ways to invite people into those third places, not here in our house of worship, not at home, but with a common interest, a common need for encouragement. Someone else at this pastor's meeting said something that I thought was really good. He said, the pandemic is an opportunity for us to simplify discipleship. We know that, that we are disciples first. We are not people who sit in seats and look at what's happening at the front of the room on Sunday morning. So much of what passes for church is consumer religion. And I wonder if maybe we're getting a little lazy and complacent with online worship. It's easy, it's comfortable. Some of you out there are in your pajamas right now. I, kind of, okay. I kind of envy that, actually. <laughs> But it risks being about me and my convenience. And, and that's why we need what the church has practiced for 2,000 years, and, and we call those practices spiritual disciplines. And this one pastor at the meeting I was at on Thursday said that his church is now simplifying discipleship and focusing on three disciplines. First of all, keeping Sabbath. Secondly, listening to God through Scripture and prayer. And thirdly, participating in community. And we've talked about some of that already, but Sabbath, I think, is really important to us right now because we've lost our sense of time, we've lost our sense of boundaries, a lot of us are working from home, there's confusion that way. We are so distracted right now, and we need to get off our screens, and we need to pay attention to God and to one another. Could we do that for one day a week? Could you do that? Is that a practice you'd be prepared to adopt, even just to try on? So what are the disciplines that we need at Courtright? What is our vision for discipleship? How are you in your life putting the truth of Ephesians into practice? What habits are sustaining your faith these days? I'd love to hear from you about that. And I know that we'll be talking about it later in our neighborhood groups, for those of you who are headed into your groups after the service. And I would ask you to pray for me and for all the staff, for Justin and the rest of us, and for the elders as we retreat together on November 7th, and as we begin to envision uh, what God wants for us. He wants to bless us. We know he wants the best for us. What does that look like? What is he calling us to do? So thank you.